The world has completely changed, and yet it's still exactly the same. Perhaps that's the beauty of the liturgical calendar. I'm almost literally picking right back up where I left off, and we continue to wrestle with the same old story, just like how we keep living the same story over and over again, even though some details change. So look, we're just getting back into this. I think it might be helpful to start out nice and easy. Nothing too controversial. What if we talked about the devil? I'm not going to say that I spent my childhood in fear of a giant red creature who was out to get me, but I was incredibly confused by the fact that sometimes I would behave, quote, badly when I genuinely wanted to be, quote, good. Or in my holy vernacular of the time, as Paul would say, why am I doing what I don't want to do? I imagine this is why I was so easily able to overlook any evidence and or logic before adopting a belief in an extra-worldly creature or figure who was far more powerful than me and who was influencing me to do, quote, bad things. You know, the devil made me do it. Now, of course, the devil or Satan or Lucifer isn't the main focus of the readings this week. But our view of this figure will certainly influence how we look at the readings this week. So before we get too far into the episode, I wanted to give you a brief history of this figure. This devil or Satan figure exists in our minds as a giant smoothie of blended ideas that don't really go together. This scriptural antagonist, who would appear to pop up every now and then over time, actually doesn't exist as one figure. Sure, if you want to expand the definition of the devil to be a generic opposition to God, then we can move forward. But if Satan is your Voldemort, we have a problem. For example, who was it that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? Well, it was just the serpent. As my friend J.R. Foresteros points out in his book, Empathy for the Devil, it wasn't until Origin in the 200s that the devil was conflated with the serpent. There also aren't any other references to the devil in what's called the First Temple Period, roughly 1000 BC to 586 BC. To make a long story short, they sort of just thought about the heavenly pantheon completely differently at that time. But then something very important happened in 586. Judah was taken over by the Babylonians. That was important because all of a sudden, a people group who had been highly favored and blessed, God's chosen people, had been decimated and taken over. So they were confronted with an age-old question they hadn't wrestled with much. Why do bad things happen to chosen people? All of a sudden, this devilish antagonist appears, especially in the prophet's writings of the time. Satan actually doesn't pop up much at all, but I'll admit it's certainly more than never. You actually see this shift very obviously if you compare 2 Samuel 24 to 1 Chronicles 21. Those two passages recount the exact same events, but 2 Samuel 24, which is older, doesn't mention Satan at all. And all of a sudden, in Chronicles, Satan is there. In short, the Deuteronomistic editors confronted this problematic question of evil by adding in this devil as an antagonist to God. 
So occasionally the prophets tell the people the reason they're in such trouble is because they've not done what God asked them to do. But they also, on occasion, add in this figure who is always looking for ways to oppose God. Now this devil figure that emerges during this time stays pretty consistent with the figure who occasionally pops up through the rest of scripture, as is seen in the gospel reading today. But there are at least two very important details about this character that remain consistent through the rest of the references in scripture. First, the words associated with this figure are quite odd. Lucifer was actually a mistranslation in the first place, and the words Satan and devil can be used as verbs or nouns, but not really ever as proper nouns. So not like, you know, Dasher, Dancer, and Prancer, and Satan. It's actually also similar to the way that Christ isn't Jesus's last name. The word is descriptive, and it means accuser or one who accuses. Secondly, when this character is invoked, it almost always has a political connection. In the writings of the prophets, Satan is using Babylon for his purposes. Later, it's Rome. In fact, you may be familiar with how this word is often used. Perhaps you've heard of a country like Iran referring to America as the Great Satan. Now, please hear me correctly. I'm absolutely not saying that they're correct in saying that. What I am saying is, that's fairly consistent use of the term that appears in scripture. Judah's great Satan was Babylon. Okay, great. We got a history lesson, but what does any of that have to do with the beginning of Lent or the readings this week? Well, you have heard it said that the devil you know is better than the one you don't. That seems true. But I ask you, who is the devil you know? And who is the one you don't? And why is that better? Because I was pretty captivated when, in preparing for this episode, I ran across a quote from theologian C.J. Denhayer, who said, Monotheism is a game with no more than two players, God and human beings. The origin of evil and human suffering cannot be sought outside these two players. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. Postmodern liturgy exists in a couple different forms. This podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the liturgical calendar the week before they actually occur. So this podcast comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Our distinctive is that we try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses to the text, especially offering space for deconstruction and doubt. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. As we are returning, we're once again entering the season of Lent. If you've listened to this podcast before, 
you probably heard my last Lent series, which showed that shame and repentance have no business being in the same conversation. But now my opening started by dwelling on quite a shame-inducing figure. Well, I hope I can make all this fit together. But before I do, let's take some time to reflect on the readings for this Sunday, the first Sunday in Lent. into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for God's name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And God brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, So now I bring the first fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and bow down before the Lord your your God. Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given you and to your house.
Psalm 91, verses 1 through 2 and verses 9 through 16. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. For God will command God's angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Romans chapter 10, the second half of the eighth verse through verse 13. The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved.
chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve God only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him, until an opportune time. It's quite important to note the place of this temptation story in Luke. By the way, you may have noticed it also appears in Matthew. But in Luke, it comes right after the baptism and genealogy of Jesus. So Luke 3 introduces Jesus as the Messiah and then sort of proves the lineage to allow him to be Messiah. That's important because this story doesn't seem to be meant to prove to us that Jesus can help us overcome temptation. I mean, that's how it's often used, right? If Jesus can resist the devil, then you can resist the devil. I actually think the only reason we read this story dramatically at all is because the devil's involved. It's the Christian equivalent of Iron Man versus Thanos, except Jesus doesn't need part one and part two to solve these problems. A 40-day depleted Jesus hears the devil's temptations and then is like, nah, and then it's over. There's a reason for this story, and it's not to make people careful about the devil. We see this story just after learning that Jesus is the Messiah because it allows us to see exactly the sort of Messiah Jesus is going to be. These little story details happen several times in the Gospels, and us first world Christians just love to gloss over them. A very similar thing happens with the Palm Sunday narrative leading into Holy Week. Everyone thinks Jesus is going to win with force. Jesus ends up dying. The Messiah's purpose is to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. 
Careful examination of the temptations here show that they are just three off-mission, or maybe even more clearly, three easy ways to inaugurate the kingdom. Erdman's commentary has quite a succinct outline of these three alternative methods for inauguration. Calling them for the first temptation, use of extraordinary power to provide bread, for the second, military dreams of world empire, and for the third, a sudden appearance in the temple. Jesus rejects each of these to remain on the path to inaugurate the kingdom of God through a descent to the bottom. However, there was something that just kept nagging at me about this particular passage as the beginning of Lent. I mean, Lent is the season of self-examination and repentance. So what would Jesus' dismissal of temptation from an external source have to do with repentance? Jesus is probably near death after not eating for 40 days, and still, he dismisses the temptations with ease. Then something occurred to me, especially after researching the history of the idea of the devil. There's some pretty suspicious stuff about these temptations. One of the things that the devil does is quote our psalm reading to Jesus. That seems like sort of a Jesus thing to do. Secondly, the devil basically says he has been given authority to give Jesus authority. Well, who gave the devil authority? God? Thirdly, if the devil is effectively the antagonist to God, then why would the devil's three temptations be ways to inaugurate God's kingdom? Even if they are misguided, they would still seem to be counter to the devil's goals. So, is it possible these temptations are internal rather than external? Now, before you freak out, I should point out, even if it were possible, there isn't anything wrong with temptation, especially since Jesus dismisses each of them. But if this were the case, I think it would offer us a pretty good framework for Lent. You see, a trend I have seen over the last couple years, including one I've seen within myself, is a frantic urge to find the devil in society. Maybe it'd be more accurate to call them the demons within society. You know, Donald Trump is pure evil. Joe Biden is pure evil. Maskers and vaxxers are trying to take away my God-given freedom. Anti-each of those things are trying to kill me and everyone I love. Voter fraud, police, Black Lives Matter, guns, socialism, etc. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't settled answers to almost every single one of these things. I'm saying you are presented with a list of devils every day. You believe whoever you want and move forward trying to resist the temptations that come from these external forces. These are the devils you know. But there is the devil you don't know. You. Of course, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. After all, why go to all the trouble of withdrawing for a time and looking inward when I can just blame external forces for everything wrong with the world? If C.J. Denhayer is right, and monotheism is a game with no more than two players, God and human beings, and I think he is, that leaves one possibility for who the tempter is, and it ain't God. But let me be clear, I'm not saying you or I bear the responsibility for all the evil in the world. I'm also not saying that each person divides up e evil equally. 
I'm not trivializing oppression and injustice, and I do believe in systemic injustice and inequality. Furthermore, I even still affirm that we wrestle against principalities and powers. I just don't think the solution to these issues is scapegoating to a mysterious, external, unsubstantiated, and little-referenced personal pronoun devil, as we may have been prone to do in this story with Jesus. Instead, is it possible that in this season of self-examination and repentance, Jesus offers us a perfect example? Is it possible that instead of Jesus doing some cosmic battle with a supernatural villain who can't possibly exist in monotheism, Jesus has done the tedious and potentially painful work of looking inward and has dealt with his temptations. What could be a better example as we enter this season of Lent? The call here isn't to prepare for battle. The call is to bring our internal temptations out into the light and to reject them. To reject power and arrogance and be renewed in a kingdom built on love humility, and care for the marginalized. Many of us grew up with a devil we knew, and we were well prepared to do battle. Perhaps this particular Lent is the time to get to know the one we don't. for joining me this week. It's really good to be back. If you'd like to continue talking about this topic or if you want to stay informed about what's going on with postmodern liturgy, you can join us online at postmodernliturgy.com. You can follow me on Instagram at postmodernliturgy. And I used to have a Facebook site, but it was apparently hacked and stolen and I don't have control anymore. Oddly, I can still post on the site through Instagram, but I don't apparently own it anymore. I'm trying to get that rectified, but it's probably better if you don't join me on Facebook for now. I might move toward a mailing list in the future because, as we all know, social media is exhausting. Finally, I mentioned on the Season 3 trailer that I did away with my Patreon page. I tell you that because some benefits that used to be reserved for that group are now open to anyone. So you may want to go poke around on the website. Thanks again for joining me this week. See you next week. And as always, enjoy the tension.